Well, I'm excited next week to have uh, Flory Buki come and preach, uh, also do some time during Sunday school uh, to present to you Covenant Kids Congo. We did a Hope Sunday last year and uh, invited you to join in with uh, our brothers and sisters in the Covenant who are supporting uh, the the Congo and our work in the Congo that we've been involved in really since the 30s. Um, but I'm also excited because as we've been looking at our church vision statement, which we just developed a matter of weeks ago, um, this is an indication or, or a way that one of our specific ministries, our missions team, has utilized a vision statement to say yes or no to certain opportunities, right? They've they developed a vision statement and over the last couple of years, they have been living by that vision statement, uh, using it to to actually say we can we should pursue these mission priorities. We should not pursue these mission priorities. But even when they say no because they're following a vision statement, they're not making a qualification saying, "Well, that's a bad ministry. We can't do that." No, they're saying they're saying we need to refine and focus our energies if we're going to fulfill the vision we have based on the mission that we have as a church based on who we are, based on our, our resources, that's what we need to do. So that's what we're seeing, and that's what we get to participate in next week with Covenant Kids Congo. I'm excited about that. And, and it's for that reason, not Covenant Kids Congo, but for the reason of, of being able to say yes and no to ministry, to be mission-focused, uh, that's why we have a vision statement. And as we've said, it's not a perfect vision statement. I hope we refine it. I, I, we have to refine it over the next couple of years. But this is what we've got. This is what we voted on. This is what we put together. So let's say it together, and then let's talk about the fourth core value of our vision statement today. The vision statement reads, We exist for God's glory. Guided by God's word through worship and prayer, we will share joyfully the good news of Jesus Christ to make more disciples and bring the light of Christ to Lincoln and beyond. And we focused our effort on the four core values over the last four weeks now, that we believe Scripture is God's word to us and informs who we are and what we do. Uh, we are committed to unity as the body of Christ. Our mission begins by caring for one another. And this week we're going to look at the, the fourth of those core values. We are mission-focused and seek to share the good news in action and truth. All of this sits underneath our mission statement to know Christ and make him known. That's why we exist. That's why the church exists. The church exists so that we would tell the world the good news, and so we would live it out. Evangelism, discipleship. Within that, you get the church's existence as, as uh, the mechanism to worship God. We are the people who worship God and invite others to do the same. We're those who bring the good news, and we'll talk about that this morning. And in, in fact, that's stated in that this very core value, that, that we are mission-focused and seek to share the good news in action and truth. That is in both what we say and what we do. In, in recent Christian history, within the last 125 or a little bit more years, there's been a... a off and on, it was it was hot and heavy during the early 1900s, and and certain camps have formed, and have remained that way within uh, Christian circles, and not to our betterment. Uh, there was controversy uh, that really put 
people in two polar camps when it came to the good news. That the good news of Jesus Christ to some people is purely the good works that we do within the world to change the life circumstances of those in our own community and around the world. So social justice, those sorts of initiatives fit in there. And on the other complete opposite end of the spectrum, you have the good news understood as, as purely spiritual, and I mean that in a very wooden sense, purely spiritual as what I would suggest is purely an inner work. Yet what Jesus shows us is that you can't put these at polar opposite ends of one another. It's not simply one or the other. And I think the core value we have here says that. Just like 1 John would affirm. Just like we'd see throughout the New Testament. That we are we're, we're to take the good news out. And it is both in the words, in the inner transformation, but it's also an action in, in affecting real people in real places. What Jesus shows us, if you look just simply at the book of Matthew, and we looked at that you know, over the last year, uh, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the book of Matthew alone will show us a good example that Jesus comes and we get this introduction to who Jesus is in the beginning of Matthew. Matthew 5 through 7, Jesus gives us the core in words of what he's about, and then what does he do after that? Matthew 8 through the end is really him showing it. Right? That's really when he comes and he touches people who are blind and they are physically healed, where he touches those who are deaf and they'll hear again. He touches those who can't walk and now they can walk. Where he gives freedom to people who are bonded by shame and sin. And he says, I came to proclaim the, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Where the stuff that would hold us back from the presence of God, the stuff that would hold us back from God's intent, the stuff that would, that would eat at what God created as good and call it something else, that that stuff would be done with. Jesus said, I came to start a new kingdom, and I'm the king. A.W. Tozer, in his book, uh, The Knowledge of the Holy, he says, God is holy. And he has made holiness the moral condition necessary for the health of his universe. Sin's temporary presence in the world only accents this. Whatever is holy is healthy. Evil is a moral sickness that must end ultimately in death. You see, the world was created good. And sin aims to mess that up. Sin just, just eats at the good. It perverts the good. It's a parasite of the good. And our part as the church is to, to continue in that very work of Jesus Christ by the power of Christ. See, we exist not simply to tell the world how far they are from God. Some churches excel at that. You are far from God, sinner. That has to be part of the conversation, certainly. Our job is not just to tell people how far they are from God, but to show the world what it is to be close to God and invite them to that way. That what's sick may be made healthy, what's lost can be redeemed, what's broken can be made whole, and what's empty can be filled. 
That's what Jesus Christ is promising in the good news. In truth and in, in the action to show that truth working out. And so I want to look today at Acts 5, 12 through 16 to get this little portrait of the early church. And we're going to look at the, the parts around it too. But we'll just read Acts 5, 12 through 16 with a couple of verses around it. So if you can find that, that'd be great. And, and we get this portrait of the early church and the work of the early church as they're figuring all of this out too. The early church runs into many uh, issues along the way of how we're going to live out this faith. They, they hit roadblocks regularly and they have to figure it out. On the fly. In Acts 4, 32 through 37, you have this period where they're credited with this great unity. In fact, it's Acts 4, 32. It says all the believers were one heart and mind. Right? They had this unity about them. And people are coming. And they're giving gifts. In fact, they're, they're selling basically their estates and giving it all, putting it all at the feet of of the apostles. There's unity, there's sharing, there's caring for all. And we have this little picture of Barnabas, Acts uh, 4, 36 through 37. It says, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom, all, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold the field he owned, brought the money, and put it at the apostles' feet. You can see what's going on, the spirit of generosity that characterizes the early church. Now, I want to point out, because the next story that comes up is one of dissent, and which brings fear in the story of Ananias and Sapphira. We won't unpack it all, but I think it's important to see sort of four uh, moments here in the early church that seem to happen within close proximity to one another. So you've got this great unity, you've got this great spirit of generosity, this sharing, this caring that's going on. Barnabas comes, and don't forget that story as you think of Ananias and Sapphira. Barnabas comes, he sells this property, he lays the proceeds at the apostles' feet for use, for sharing and caring. There's no sense of, of this is mine and I'm giving this just, there you go. This is, this is something that's for use, for caring for those who need to hear the good news and need to experience the good news. There's nothing in the text, both there or with the story of Ananias and Sapphira coming up, that suggests that everybody had to give everything. That doesn't let us off the hook for generosity. It is just to say, Ananias and Sapphira are about to, to come up, and they're about to do the same thing Barnabas did, at least outwardly. And sometimes we can come to that and say, well, they didn't give everything, so that's the problem. No, it doesn't say they didn't give everything. In fact, that's not even the problem. Ananias and Sapphira, they sell their property just like Barnabas. They bring proceeds to the apostles' feet. But they connive together to look like they gave everything without actually giving, giving everything. They withhold, but give the impression that they didn't. And, and it is, in fact, uh, the deceit and the hypocrisy and the lying that's the issue, not the fact that they withheld. It's that they lied about it. In fact, they're told, you didn't have to do this, basically. But you guys tried to get something, tried to have your cake and eat it, too. And what happens, they both fall dead when this, when this comes about, when their lying comes about. And there's their issues of ego and integrity is what they are. 
But you can see the effect on the church. They had this unity of mind and of spirit. They were together. And now all of a sudden, when this bit of sin comes into the camp, what happens? There's dissent, which leads to fear. The people feared what would happen. Great fear seized the people, the text tells us. They were afraid to share the good news. But what happens after that? Then you begin to see the signs again from the apostles. So you read Acts 5, 12 through 16. It says, The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and mats, so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. And you have these signs. Now the signs are given by the apostles. We can easily look at that and say, well, everybody in the early church was healing. Well, that capability might have been there for anybody to heal. I'm not going to deny that, but the text doesn't really show us that. The text shows us that the apostles were the ones healing, and these were signs. Essentially signs of their leadership and apostleship, confirmation of their leadership, which often happens in different periods of, new terror of, of Bible history, right? You'll find Moses, or you'll find Elijah and Elisha, or Jesus, or here you have the apostles. It shows it's a confirmation of what God is doing and a confirmation of leaders God has chosen. That's what's going on with the healing in this particular case. But, but you can see the effect that it has. You see, there's still this trepidation. Some people are fearful, but some are wholeheartedly bringing people because they see that something's happening. We'll take a chance. We'll go in. And so you see this period of what I would call healing going on within the church. And then you have after that this, this persecution that goes on. The apostles are called before the Sanhedrin because they're preaching the good news out in public. They're called into the Jewish ruling court, the Sanhedrin, so that they can basically be uh, told not to do it. They're thrown in jail. They're released from jail in the middle of the night, but the doors are still locked. The Sanhedrin says, hey, hey go get the apostles that are locked up. The, the people go to the jail and discover they're gone. They are not here, but everything's locked up. We can't explain this. But where did the apostles go? They're still preaching out in the public square, right there. They haven't left. They're not hiding. And so they're brought in front of the Sanhedrin. And, and, and as they're there, they're, they're basically told, you shouldn't do this. But Gamaliel, a Jewish uh, council member, stands up and famously says, look, we've watched this happen before. Somebody comes through and says that they have a message from God. Let it stand or fall on its own. If it's from God, it'll go. If it's not, it'll fall. It'll, it'll just completely fail. But yet they don't just leave it there because then they have the apostles flogged that are there. And yet, if you look at, uh, it, it says that the apostles regarded this highly. They suffered for the name, for Jesus. And you have this, they rejoiced, it says. So you have unity, but then you have this period of dissent. Then you have uh, healing and rejoicing. This fear is going away. There's a joy that's coming back in. 
And it may seem redundant to point out, but if we're going to fulfill our mission, brothers and sisters, we have to be mission-focused. I know, it seems, it seems redundant to say, but let's just point this out. Along the way, as you're trying to fulfill your mission, our mission, there will always be distractions, external and internal distractions, both kinds. And the truth of the matter is, think about the external uh, uh, distractions particularly, but not exclusively. The truth of the matter is, the mission will always be under attack if we're mission-focused. If we're really focused on the mission, there's always going to be something or someone who's out to undo the mission, who's out to stop it from proceeding. I won't talk much about the external issues. We can... Most of those are pretty obvious to us, I think, whether it's uh, anything from somebody protesting, which we don't actually get here, we're small enough, uh, to laws being changed, right, to uh, maybe an external uh, something that could could threaten the church would be uh, when a pastor goes bad, right, the moral failure, and that, that questions makes everybody question everything about organized religion or whatever, uh, or, or even doing right in a skeptical culture. Well, you must be doing it for some reason. You must be getting some benefit out of it. You must be getting money out of it or something. The mission will always be under attack. If we're faithful to the mission, it will always be under attack. Let us just be aware of that. There will always be moments when we're brought before the Sanhedrin and said, well, go on your way, but we're, we're censured along the way because we're doing what we're called to do. We're being faithful. Brothers and sisters, the evil one is out to destroy this. The evil one is out to destroy the church. And he's only going to work when we're working towards the mission. So we have to recognize that, that there will always be some kind of opposition, some kind of attack. But it's the internal stuff I want to look at now, because that's what's going on in the text as you look at this. What, what could distract us internally? Oh, all kinds of things. But let's just bring up a couple of them. The simple, uh, usual one picked out is tradition, right? The classic understanding would be we've never done it that way, right? The killer for, for new ideas within the church. But, but maybe underneath that, another thing that actually kills us is not so much the overt, we've never done it that way, but just not analyzing what we're doing. And just saying, well, we planned it last year. Yeah, it seemed like it went okay, I guess. We don't really analyze it. We don't really give it careful scrutiny. And so we just go forward and keep doing things over and over that may or may not be good, may or may not be the best that we're called to, may or may not be the best thing to fulfill our mission. We're just not carefully looking at what we're doing and the results that it brings. And it becomes a tradition. I, I, remember, uh, I remember being at a church. Uh, but the first church I served, and I was told by somebody coming in, they were, what, 20-something years old as a church. They said, oh, you're going to love it here because we don't have, we're so young, we don't have any traditions. Let me just tell you, a church that's one day old has traditions. Every church has traditions. They're just not so deeply ingrained in a one day old church. But I, I can tell you, even church plants have their traditions. We always get coffee before we set up the sound equipment or whatever it is. They, they'll always have something. And it can, be a, it can distract us. A second thing I would point out is that, that second and third string items will sometimes distract us from the mission. That is to say, well-intentioned things that are not our purpose or our primary purpose. So things like pet projects, 
where, where there might be oversensitivity to one or two voices because they, they, they're just good-hearted. They're just, they seem like, like such well-intentioned things, and we're afraid to hurt people's feelings. But I can tell you, I mean, I've been at churches where those kinds of pet projects get built into the budget, and you come and look and you say, well, now we have a big problem because we have one, this affects one or two people, and we have $1,000 allocated or $2,000 or $3,000 allocated to something that only one or two people are doing and actually are that concerned about. It might be a good project, but it's a pet project. And so that those resources are diverted unnecessarily. Or we can have second or third string items where, where, where they're not our primary purpose, but they look like they're our primary purpose or become our primary purpose because of strong personalities. right? People, uh, let's just point out churches, especially smaller churches, breed passive-aggressive people if they're not careful about it, if they're not realizing it, because this is a way for somebody to get what they want but look nice doing it. Right? And so they use manipulative means or they, they figure out how to use uh, the parliamentary processes uh, in order to get what they want, but it's not what everybody else wants. It's just what they want. Strong personalities like that or, or recognition. Recognition can, can bring a second or third string item up to the top. Or somebody says, I really want this thing to happen. And, and it could be any reason, right? It could be that the big church across the country is doing it. It could be that my son-in-law's church is doing it, whatever it is. They, they, for some reason they want or I want my name attached to it or something like that. Ananias and Sapphira were like it. They want their name attached to it. They're strong personalities. And, and, and folks, that, that's a killer for the mission. It holds us back from what we're called to do. We're not focused anymore on what matters most. It's not to say that all those things might be bad. They're just not best. And not why we're here. And then the third thing I would point out that can distract us is just growth. Churches give into this all the time. Picking out short-term solutions because we see that numbers are, are not quite where we think they should be, whether the offering plate or the amount of people in the seats. So we come up with short-term solutions. We throw money at the problem or we aim for cool or whatever it is, right? Let's change everything about all the music and all of that so that we can all of a sudden attract our, be attractive to millennials or whatever it is uh, this year that we're going to do. All might be well-intentioned things, people. It can, it can be a distraction from what we're actually called to do because we're trying so hard to reach a segment of the population. We're trying so hard uh, to simply uh, uh, fill, make it look successful numerically when that might not be what success is. And we get distracted. And, and the truth, honestly, suffers. And discipleship suffers in those cases, if we're just aiming to get people in. Brothers and sisters, you hired a pastor who is not cool, who is not a hipster. You're not going to go there, just so you know, but but we can't try and just, just get concerned about growth in these other ways and and sacrifice the mission because of it. Our job is not to become big. Now, I'll make this caveat. We're in a town where about 100,000 people claim no religious affiliation. There's more we can do, and we ought to grow because of that. 
because we're reaching out. But that's not, our, that's not our goal is to grow. Our goal is to take the good news out. And I expect the byproduct of that should be growth if we're doing that right. We've got to focus on the goal, the means towards that goal, and the results. I remember in a previous church, um, to give an example of, of where we need to kind of analyze and make sure that we're focused on the right things, um, there was a, a program that had been there prior to my coming for a few years. Uh, it was a program that reached out uh, to the neighborhood and invited in the, the uh, police, fire department, all those people to come and bring the trucks and all that and the cars. Uh, really, as a thank you for their service within the community, and, and it was billed as an outreach event. So there was food, the power company was there, all kinds of people were there. Built as an outreach event, advertised within uh, the community and the neighborhood. And it would get a little crowd that would come every year. But but when, when we analyzed it, when I asked, there was one couple that did it. When I asked them, well, how many people have come to the church then? If it's an outreach event, how many people have come to the church as a result of this event in four or five years? They said, we had a couple come and visit the church once. One couple didn't stick around. They visited one Sunday in four or five years. It's a good idea. But with analysis, we realized it's time to close it down. Much to their frustration. But but that's what we have to do with the vision statement. That's what it's doing. It's saying we got to focus on the mission at hand. And even if it's a good thing, we can't just let it go on simply because it's a good thing. We might not be doing the best that God has called us to. So we've got to be mission-focused. I, I, I really appreciate when we, we we voted this in that we did kind of a final round of any final changes that we ought to make to this thing, any final uh, commas that need to be added or anything like that. Um, and, and it was pointed out that there was no sort of attitude in this, no sort of how we should do it. What our, what our internal attitude should be as we do it. And the word joy was added to it, which was otherwise missing, and it was the right word to add. It was the right, absolutely right thing. And so we're mission-focused. But if you notice in the actual mission statement, it, it, it added joy. And, and brothers and sisters, as we fulfill our mission, joy is our attitude. Joy is what should be inside of us fueling us to do this. Ministry success will not always look like worldly success. There are certainly things that we can take from the business world, for instance, that will help us understand how to function as a church, but they're not the same thing. More members, new programs, more money, those don't always equal success. In fact, sometimes those can be some of the distractions that hold us back. We get more money, we get, we get pulled into safety mode, right? We get more members, we think we're doing great, but they might not be... Christians are even discipled at all. We might be failing in those areas. And new programs, let's face it, that was the way of the 80s. You could start a new program and something would happen. Now it's not the same. It doesn't work the same way. No. Ministry success doesn't always look like worldly success. Our success might, in fact, look like failure. Look at that period of what I, I called the rejoicing uh, in Acts 40, or 5, excuse me, 40 through 42. Uh, after Gamaliel gives this speech, he's got the apostles there. It says, his speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and they had them flogged. 
Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Our success might look like failure sometimes, but that was success to them. That's what caused the joy in them. My goodness, we recognize that somebody is against us, which means actually we might be doing something right. We might be taking things out. And so we have to ask questions about this, the joy behind us and the, the success issue. First and foremost, in what we're doing, are we bringing glory to God? We don't want to get trapped uh, into being simply a well-organized entity, but we're not actually bringing glory to God. It's easy for a church to get there. Willow Creek did their famous study in the early 2000s uh, after years and years of growth, of fast growth, of, of becoming one of the biggest churches around. It looked very successful, but they did their own analysis and said, you know what? We didn't actually create disciples in that time. We got a lot of people in the door. It was a wonderful time, but we didn't create disciples. That's a harder road. That's what we need to do. And they've shifted, and it's been a harder road, but that's what they need to do. You see, they were doing something good, but they said, we're not doing our best. Are we bringing glory to God in what we're doing? That's what they were asking. And joy has to be our attitude if we're going to get there. If we, if we ask ourselves, take a poll among ourselves and say, what I do, the ministry I do, the way I serve around this church, uh, would people look at me and say I'm doing it joyfully? Or would they say, he's just doing it? See, at that point, we might not be using our giftedness, or we might not be doing the right things, or, or one or the other. We have to recognize that we need to have joy behind what we're doing if we're going to want to keep doing it. And, and then, this, this does get at the issue of joy as well. Is fear, as, is fear of failure enough to stop us in our tracks? Would we be done? Is fear of opposition enough to stop us in our tracks? You see, a fear-driven church has no joy, right? They're driven by something else, by money or numbers or whatever, not by the joy, not by the message, the good news itself, and what it, and the power it has in people's life. I love in, in Craig Rochelle, pastor of Life Church's book, uh, It, he, he says at Life Church, we know, one of the biggest churches in the world, he says at Life Church, we're not afraid of failure. We don't ask what happens if this fails when we're thinking of something, but our qualification question is what happens if this works? There's a different attitude behind that. Isn't that the very kind of thing that, that's driving Peter at Pentecost when he stands up and he preaches to a crowd that's actually against him in many ways, saying these people are just drunks at nine in the morning? No, he gets to share the message to a group of people. He stands up and does it. Paul does the same thing in Acts 17. He gets a chance to stand. In fact, he looks for the opportunity. Why? Because joy is driving him, not fear. Believers share, we read in Acts 4. In Acts 5, even, they're joy-driven. When fear enters, what happens? The joy is killed. The mission suffers. No, but what, what drives them to do it again? Joy. Joy is there. And, and beyond that, what you see is that not just does our attitude need to be joyful, but encouragement needs to be there within the body of believers. Encouragement is our fuel to go forward. 
That's what you get when the, when the healing starts again. The apostles are shown, yes, you guys are the leaders. Yes, the church is still functioning. Yes, fear is not ruling us. Encouragement, they're seeing lives change. People change because of the truth of the good news. Brothers and sisters, we must look for the best of what God is doing among us. Unity was disrupted by dissent and fear in this issue, and it killed the mission. But what happens? Then there's this period of healing, and then this rejoicing. Now, it doesn't mean that the church's eyes is going to go through that pattern, but you can clearly see that there's something there of substance to go after, something there that you can hold on to and say, okay, where are we at as a church? Encouragement has to be our fuel. We need to make sure that we're focused and refined in what we're doing and taking out the good news. I was driving with a, a pastor friend recently um, to visit a couple other pastors, actually, uh, part of that, our church planters, regional church planters group. And as, as we're on our way, we're talking, and, um, and I was reflecting. I said, you know, sometimes I, I, I put together two parables that Jesus tells and thinking through some things. I think we're, we're driven in the church. We want to do what's, what's best in the world. And sometimes I think the narrative that we have going in our mind is the one of the lost sheep that Jesus tells. If, if, a, if a shepherd loses the one sheep, will he not leave the other 99 and go find the one lost sheep? And, and believe me, it's, it's about the kingdom. All parables are about the kingdom. There's great truth to that, obviously. And there's something we need to take to heart. But sometimes I wonder if that particular parable overtakes a lot of, of, of what we're doing in this world. So we're focused on the lost soul and we're focused on the stories sometimes of a person who evangelized to somebody for 27, 30, 40 years before they finally came to know Christ. That's good. And then of course there are countless other stories of people who were evangelized to for long periods of time that just never came to know Christ. They're the lost sheep that stayed lost. But sometimes I wonder if we mix metaphors a little bit and, and we, we also take into account one of my favorites, the parable of the wheat and the tares, where you have the wheat growing, but you have the weeds, right? The farmer sowed the, the wheat in the field. Somebody came in the night and sowed weeds in the middle of that. And they start growing together. And the farmer says, don't pull weeds yet. Wait until they get taller so we can distinguish them. And that's a parable about how the kingdom is emerging in our very midst, that there are those who are faithful, who are the redeemed growing up. The kingdom is growing just like that. Well, we, it seems hard to distinguish at times, but then it grows up in our midst and we say, ah, oh, there's the wheat. I see it now. And the weeds get pulled. And sometimes I wonder if in the church we think our job is finding the lost sheep. Clearly we need to do that. But that's our only job, and we end up watering weeds, not realizing it. We end up pouring a bunch of energy into something that's not God's crop, or in pouring energy into something that's just not going to succeed, or pouring energy into something that's just not the best that we're called to do. It may not be bad even in some cases, it's just not what we're called to do. It's not where our giftedness lies. We could encounter any one of these phases that the early church runs into. 
unity, dissent, healing, rejoicing. Fear can be put in there. Joy can be in there. Encouragement. But, but brothers and sisters, we're mission focused. We seek to share the good news in action and in truth, and we can't get distracted. It's easy to put a lot of energy, a lot of time, a lot of money into the wrong things and believe we're faithful. It's easy to devote ourselves to something and do the wrong thing faster and more efficiently, but still it's not what we're called to do. Still it's not the best thing. You see a portrait of that in Act 6, right, where you have leaders in the church who are supposed to devote themselves to prayer and to the Word who are say we're waiting on tables. And that's not even being taken care of very well. And they say, no, this isn't right. We're doing something that's good. It's just, it's not the best. We can do this better. And so they regroup. They analyze. They say, how do we put the right people in the right places to do the right ministry? They understand the mission. The good news is right here with us. Within this room, you can hear the stories from one another of lives, lives changed and lives being changed. You can hear the stories of unity of believers, those who are meeting in groups, those who help one another, those who pray for one another, those who share meals together, give meals when we need them, those who, who gather together to study God's word week in and week out. You can see in our midst the devotion that we have to mission local and worldwide. And, and frankly, uh, I think we're in a period of healing still, if we were to look at these four phases. You as small groups can look at that further this week. I'm, I'm so excited. I'm so excited to see where God takes us with the gifts and abilities that we have. Because I do think that we're encouraged as a congregation. I do think that there's a sense of joy that, that lives within us and amongst us. Let it not stop. It's just that, but let us continue to move forward to do God's best in this community and in the world that we live in. Let's pray.